In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also Follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. A reminder for the book of the week, it is The Upward Spiral by Dr. Alex Korb. The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. Uh, You might remember Dr. Alex Korb was on the show about two years ago um, discussing this very book. And it's an excellent book that can use as a neuroscience to show you different ways that you can actually battle depression, but also just improve your mental health. They're really things that are good for anyone's mental health, things like meditation, exercise, social support, therapy. But then he gets into how these different things create change in the brain, which is pretty remarkable and very interesting. So hopefully you'll join me in reading this book, The Upward Spiral, which I will discuss this coming Monday. To start the show, I wanted to talk about jokes. Now, I'm not going to necessarily tell any jokes, but the psychology of jokes is something very interesting, the psychology of humor. And there's a lot of people that have studied that, and I won't get into necessarily what makes something funny, but as you might have heard, or people say, there's truth to every joke, and I definitely believe in that. Now, we sometimes say something is funny because it's true, and that's one aspect of it, but when we say there's truth in every joke, usually we mean there's some truth that the joke teller is telling us through the joke. And jokes can actually be a very interesting way of passive-aggressive communication to express something that is not easy for us to express directly. But hey, if I say it as a joke, no one can get mad at me, right? Well, not necessarily, but that's usually how things go. People just say, oh, it was just a joke. So it doesn't matter that I insulted you or insulted someone else or made a sexist joke or a racist joke. It's it's a joke, so that makes it okay. But I, I don't agree with that. I'm not saying I'm against all jokes. I definitely don't think that's a good solution. But we do have to be aware of what our jokes are expressing. And I came across an article that says that that was titled, Men Tell Sexist or Homophobic Jokes Because They Feel Their Masculinity is Being Threatened. So they f- did a study uh, on heterosexual men, and they found that men who felt their masculinity was being threatened were more likely to engage or find humorous things that were sexist or homophobic um, in a way to distance themselves from those types of uh, being, whether being a woman or being gay, to reaffirm their masculinity, to feel better about themselves. So if they feel threatened, either in a certain context or situation, um, then they might feel it's 
better for them to to find a joke funny or to tell a homophobic or a sexist joke because it'll make them feel better about themselves. And of course, in today's day and age where we're seeing a change with women gaining more power and especially more of a presence in the workforce, we can imagine that lots of men's masculinity does feel threatened by this and they might respond by telling uh, these type of jokes or by reinforcing this type of humor. So again, humor is is something very good and we need it and it actually helps create social bonding. You can help friends get closer. Um, there's all sorts of ways that I, I'm known around my friends as someone who does tell a lot of jokes and tries to be pretty funny and I enjoy humor. I like going to stand-up comedy shows. So um, I think we, uh, I, I'm a big fan of humor and, and things of that sort. But I do think it's important for everyone to think about the types of jokes that they make. Because you see this in families sometimes. Let's say someone is angry with someone in the family, but maybe is scared of them, or maybe is, doesn't feel that they would be able to express their anger directly. So they do it through humor. And sarcasm itself is an expression of anger or has anger in it. You know, says, so oh yeah, great job. Or, oh yeah, no, we really like you. Whatever it might be, sarcasm itself has a uh, flavor of anger to it. So it is an expression of anger, but yet it's a very, at times, safe way of expressing anger. I've seen this in families where someone regularly tells jokes about one person and everyone laughs about it and they just think it's very funny, but not realizing that person that's being the butt of the joke might not like it very much. And what is very unfair if that person says, hey, I didn't like what you said. They say, oh, it was just a joke. You're being sensitive. You're taking it too harshly. But that person might be picking up on the fact that I actually know when you're making that joke, you are expressing some kind of anger towards them or something negative or you're putting them down. Um, this study I was talking about talked specifically about sexist or homophobic jokes, but we know that in general, just if we feel threatened in any way, we like to put other people down to make us feel better. And that's, again, another way we do that is through humor. So ask yourself this question, are there certain jokes or what are the types of jokes I tend to make? And what might they be expressing about myself? Or what might I be trying to express through those jokes? If you pick on a certain person in your family, well, why might I be doing that? Am I threatened by them? Or do I see them as an easy target, someone I can put down and make myself feel better in the moment by making myself feel better, stronger, and superior to this person? Are there sexist or racist jokes that I regularly tell? And what might that reflect about what I think about these groups of people or even about myself? So rather than just thinking a joke is a joke, it's important to look at what they might reveal about us and what we might think and feel. And even when I looked at comments in the various articles about this study, a lot of people said those types of things. Oh, it's just a joke. You guys take everything so seriously. And uh, to me, that's really missing the point of what the study is saying is that there is something being revealed in the jokes. And someone who wants to deny that usually is in some kind of denial and doesn't want to see what they're actually saying or feeling. They want to just assume a joke can just be a joke. But there's much more to the story than that. And even as comedians, I think they have to be mindful of their jokes. Because sometimes people say, well, it's art. And I'm all about free speech and art and expression. But 
at the same time, I think an artist does have a personal responsibility. Again, they have the freedom to express themselves as they wish, to be aware of the effect their art has on people and society. So if someone says, I'm an artist, I want to make this song that promotes hatred and racism, I would still say they have some level of responsibility for what they are putting out there. Now, do we limit their artistic expression or we do we disallow it? I don't think so, but I don't think the artist can also say, well, it's not my fault that if I promote racism in what I'm saying, that it makes people more racist or it has that effect. Or if I say sexist jokes, that it reinforces sexism. So you, you are an artist, you have the freedom to express yourself as an artist, but you can't say that I have no responsibility for what happens after the fact. And if we even look at jokes throughout history, if you watch stand-up comedy from 30, 40 years ago, you'll see that there was jokes they would say then that are unacceptable now. There are certain ways they maybe talked about women or races that we would not even tolerate now, but they would say it back then because back then those types of things were acceptable. So to think that humor is something off limits and that we should just leave it alone and not look at it as the uh, an expression of society, I think is missing the point. I, I'm sure a hundred years from now, if they look back at the comedy of today, they will see some things that they find very inappropriate and things that would not be acceptable to them at that point because society will have progressed further, uh, achieved the higher levels of equality and acceptance, and they won't think certain things are funny or okay to joke about or even just okay to talk about in the way that we speak about them. So humor is a reflection of yourself and, of course, in the greater scope, a reflection of society and what we see as okay. I, I talked about this also closer to April Fool's when we're talking about pranks, that um, just because a joke doesn't harm someone physically doesn't mean it ha doesn't have an emotional effect. So when they say, quote-unquote, no one got hurt, well, if someone is emotionally hurt by what happened, uh, whether it was a prank or if it was a joke, we have to take that seriously. And again, this is just another indication of how we don't equate physical pain and emotional pain. If someone gets a small physical injury, we say, oh, well, that's maybe not okay to have done that. But if someone is traumatized by the prank or if someone is um, really hurt and offended by the joke we tell about them or about their group, we think it's okay, hey, it's just a joke, take it easy. Because we don't recognize the significance of emotional pain, emotional distress, and what that means. And another thing about jokes is sometimes people say the same jokes or the same types of jokes to someone they know, a loved one, family member, a friend, and the person says, I don't like that joke, or I don't like when you tease me in that way, but the person says it's just a joke. A joke is only okay if the recipient is okay with it. You can't say, well, I'm just making a joke. It's okay. If someone tells you, I don't like that, you, you don't tell that joke. Just like if someone has uh, a sore on their arm and you poke it and they say that hurts, you can't just say, oh, I'm just touching your arm. You can't say that hurts. Well, maybe that part is sensitive to them and you have to respect that. So the same is true of a joke. You can't tell a joke to someone and say, because it's a joke and because I'm just joking, you can't be offended. The person feels what they feel. It's not up to you. And again, usually when you see scenarios like this, the person who keeps telling the joke is doing it in some way of 
expressing anger, of trying to put the other person down or to make themselves bigger than the other person. There's something going on. I've even, even seen this a lot in romantic relationships where one partner repeatedly teases the other person in certain ways that they know bothers them. They just say it's a joke, but they're doing it in a disparaging way to put them down and to assert themselves or to show their dominant position in the relationship. So yes, jokes are fun. We can have a great time with them. We enjoy a lot when we say jokes, but we have to take them seriously. Jokes can reflect so much about us. Uh, even in Persian culture, we tell a lot of jokes. Every culture has um, sexual humor, but I think it's interesting when you see jokes that are sexual in nature told by Iranians. I think the response sometimes is even greater because sex is something so taboo and we're not allowed to talk about it that it makes things, everyone gets a little bit more anxious and then also here's a way that we can talk about it because it's just a joke, but it's something people do want to talk about and be able to express. But here through the humor, we can talk about things that we can't talk about in a normal, serious conversation. So as we can see, there's many ways that humor reflects a lot about individuals, about relationships, and about culture and society. So it's worth taking another look at what jokes are and what they are reflecting. And again, for our, us ourselves to take a look at ourselves to see what am I saying through these jokes? When I keep making these jokes about my sister, what, what might that mean? Or my mother or my father? What am I saying? Or when I make these sexist jokes and I say they're just a joke, how do I actually feel about men and women and the way things are in the world today? So take a look at your own humor and those around you, and you'll probably see there's a lot more meaning to it than you just think. It's not just a joke. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwe. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 now the past weekend on sunday i had a seminar on emotional intelligence and i got to talk about a lot of things especially as for adults how to deal with emotional intelligence but then there were uh some comments i made about parenting and also some questions that came up about parenting and then i came across an article talking about anger and parents dealing with their children's anger and how most of us get this wrong. Um, so to begin with, we tend to have emotions divided into the good ones and the bad ones. That's how most people feel about most emotions. There's good emotions like happiness, of course, everyone loves happiness. When someone's happy, we're very good with them, especially our kids. That makes us feel good joy, excitement, maybe surprise. There's, you know, that restricted range, actually, when you think about it, of the quote-unquote good emotions, which also some ways we make them acceptable emotions. And then there's the bad ones. And I, you can't, I, I'm trying to make quotes, but you can't see them because they're not really bad, but the ones we assume to be bad, like anger, sadness, guilt. Um, these are the ones we consider the bad emotions, and most of us from a very young age 
learned this unfortunate lesson that some emotions are good and ones you should have and feel should feel good about having and there's others that are bad and you shouldn't have if you do have you should feel bad about them others won't like you as much parents even some I say you know people won't like you if you act like this when they have when kids have their big feelings um, but you're very explicitly and oftentimes implicitly told not to feel certain things or you should feel bad about feeling certain things so when parents come uh, or given their children or had have children they already have this mindset of these are the good feelings these are the bad feelings on top of that parents have this feeling that okay because there's these good feelings and these bad feelings and those bad ones are so bad intolerable and shouldn't be had and all those things then consciously and unconsciously they have this feeling that if my child has those bad feelings that might that reflects that I'm a bad parent so if my child is feeling extreme anger uh, that means I'm doing something wrong and I have to stop that or if they're very very sad and they're crying I'm doing something wrong most parents think their job is to make their kids happy something that I always repeat is not the case so if my kid is very sad that means I'm doing something bad and I have to get rid of it immediately what do we do to stop the crying and then it becomes a crisis how do we get rid of the crying they'll do anything to stop the crying and if they do then they feel a relief of ah okay the order is restored I am once again I could be a good parent because my kid is happy but when he or she was sad I was a bad parent um, and this actually does also create something where the parents sometimes get mad at the kids for being upset or feeling feelings that they don't think are good because how dare you make an attack on my parenting because if you're sad and that makes me a bad parent then I I'm mad at you for making me sad you can almost see the resentment or making me feel bad about my parenting and I've heard it through therapy but you can see it where parents almost feel this upset feeling well what do you have to be upset about I'm doing everything not realizing that just like our emotions are telling us something and we need to listen to them whether they're good bad or ugly our kids are showing us and telling us something when they express their feelings as well so this uh, preoccupation that parents can have and sometimes a dependency that my child's behaviors and emotions are my responsibility or a reflection of my parenting creates a heightened sense of pressure in the family on the parents and on the child for what the child does if the child acts out at school uh, and parents reinforce this too like oh you couldn't control your kid or your kid did this thing even so as I think it's funny the way parents talk about their kids behaviors they go to the, the parents and they say hey you know your kid is doing this so can you have your kids stop doing this as if they're saying hey can you please move your car it's blocking my car and I can't get out of my garage that the kid is not an object something that the parents can just control and make them do what they want to do but we approach parenting oftentimes in this way a good parent has control over their kids the kids listen to what the parent says instantly and does what they want even though this is usually more a sign of fear of the parents not a feeling of love and a feeling that what the child feels and wants to do is not important what matters is what the parent wants but this is oftentimes what we think is the pinnacle of parenting where every parent should be and if you're a good parent 
you control your kids. Uh, you know, because in the previous sex segment I talked about sexism, we also know this was true. People would say, well, a good man would control his woman, control his wife. Unfortunately, some people still think of it this way, again, that somehow the wife was his object and also a sign of strength was to have control. And still, again, people have this belief is to have control over his wife. We also have that with parents, and that still is even more accepted, that a good parent controls their kid. Well, your kids are not supposed to just listen to you. That's not how it works. But I see this when parents come and they say, well, my child got in trouble at school, and they say, you don't know how embarrassed I was when I had to go to the school. Well, kids are going to act out. Kids get into trouble, and does it necessarily mean the parents are doing something wrong? I say necessarily because, yes, if you're very neglectful, if you're abusive towards your kids, especially as they get older, they are going to be more likely to act out. But overall, as a parent, you shouldn't think everything good my child does is a reflection of me and everything bad my child does is a reflection of me either. If your kid is now very successful and is doing so many good things, maybe you were a good parent, but I'm sure your child had to work very hard to get to where they are. So you just create the environment for your child to become the best that they can be. But if you feel a strong responsibility of every good, bad thing they do or what they feel, you're putting way too much pressure on yourself and your child, not allowing them to express who they are. So to begin with, we have this framework that most parents are operating from where they think they are responsible for how their kids feel and also that certain feelings are just really bad, unacceptable, and reflections of something being very, very wrong. On top of that, although sadness is one of those feelings, anger is one that even has a worse, let's say, reputation as something really wrong, that it's very bad to get very angry and to express your anger. This comes from most of us having families where anger was expressed very poorly. Usually the way anger is expressed in most families is that it's not expressed at all until it becomes explosive and aggressive and maybe even violent. There isn't healthy expressions of anger. Most people haven't seen what that is like. So anger is one of those feelings you either just stuff in all the way and then you stuff it until you can't hold it in anymore. And then when it comes out, it's really ugly. So when we see anger, we usually think of it as this really bad, ugly thing because we never saw that it actually can be something meaningful and useful. All of the emotions, whether you think of them as good or bad, are telling us something. When you get angry, that means you feel someone did something that was a transgression, something that was against you, something upset you, or something is really just frustrating you and you can't handle it or tolerate it. But that's telling you something. Your information or your emotions are information that you are sending or that your body and your brain are sending to you, and you need to take it seriously. If you're getting upset, if you're hurt by something someone did, you want to pay attention to that. Now, when it comes to our kids... We unfortunately bring all these biases with us. If our child gets angry and really upset, we think they're doing something bad and we think they're doing something really wrong and we'll get very, very upset with them. In this article, I really liked a line that was in there. It says, when children get angry, they're not giving you a hard time. They're having a hard time. So it's not that they're giving you a hard time, like they're trying to be difficult, which is what some parents might think is going on. 
they are having a hard time. They have these big feelings and emotions inside of them, and they don't know how to express it and how to handle it. And for you as a parent to then disparage them or make them feel bad about them is definitely going to send them the wrong message about themselves and about their feelings. So instead of getting upset with them, annoyed with them, frustrated, how are you getting angry right now? You have no right almost to get angry. What you want to do is actually recognize that, okay, my child is telling me something. And especially when you have a small child, a three-year-old, four-year-old, we know that it's even harder for them to understand how, what to do with these big feelings. How do I control this rage that I'm feeling? I don't know what to do with it. I don't understand it. And they might throw tantrums and they might do different things. But all of that is their way of expressing to you, I'm not feeling okay. And imagine at that moment where they're telling you, I'm not feeling okay, for you to dismiss them or put them down or make them feel even worse about themselves how should that, or how is that making them feel? Imagine what that, that is making them feel. So rather than putting them down for that, you want to, first and foremost, not do very much. Let them express themselves. But then also you want to make sure you listen. So rather than seeing their anger as bad and problematic behavior, which is what most parents will do, you want to listen to what they're saying. Make sure they felt feel understood and heard. Oh, you must have been, and you can even verbalize what you think they're feeling. Oh, you must have got so upset you were building all those blocks and they all fell over. Rather than saying, oh, who cares? It's just the blocks, build them again. Don't be difficult. Understand where they're coming from. They put all this time and effort building this. They're very careful. They liked what they built. They were proud of what they built. And then they accidentally knocked it over or someone else knocked it over. And they're angry. So rather than dismissing their anger, Make sure you're showing them, I understand, I'm listening to you, your emotions are important. And then you also want to offer them some kind of comfort or support to help them calm down. You can even ask them, how can I help you right now? Would a hug help you? What can I do to help you uh, feel better or deal with this situation? And again, this is after you've listened. So you don't just try to silence their anger, but you let them express themselves and then you let them ask or you, you ask them how you can help them calm themselves down and by doing this you're sending them lots of messages first of all that i love and accept you no matter what no matter how big or ugly your feelings seem to become i still love you and accept you and you can do the same you're not a bad person for having these strong feelings all of us feel anger all of us feel all of the emotions so you're sending that message to them that no matter what they're feeling mom your daddy loves you uh, mom, your daddy accepts you and understands that you're going through something and I'm going to be there for you. Also, you show them, yes, I'm going to be there for you. I'm here for you no matter what, even if you're not feeling good, even if you're not in a good mood. Some parents give their kids the message that mom, your daddy really likes it when you're happy, but doesn't want to be around you so much when you're emotional or when you're angry or you're doing these types of things. So just stay happy. No, you're showing your kid no matter what you're feeling, I'm here for you. I'm always going to be here for you. And to me, again, you're always lovable, no matter what you're feeling. And then also by being with them and sitting with them and then helping them calm down, you show them that these bad feelings that you might think are bad or scary are not that bad and they're temporary. You feel them for a while and then they go away. And not only do they go away, but there's things we can do to help ourselves calm down. 
So you saw that when mommy or daddy hugged you, it helped you calm down, or we took some deep breaths together and that helped you calm down. And that then this tells the kid after a while that they can start doing these things more and more on their own. So they start to have more control or more of ability to deal with their emotions in a better way the older they get. When they're three, four, we can expect them to be able to handle these things. And that's why they need us to help them feel heard, understood, to even maybe help them understand their emotions and also help them to calm down. But the older they get, the better they become at handling these things on their own. And we want to show them this by modeling it, by doing it with them, and even practicing with them how they can do it on their own. So anger is one of those feelings that parents tend to have a very bad reaction towards, and it's important for parents to be aware that all the emotions are expressing something or are informing us of something. But as I talked about on Sunday, based on a question that came from the audience, parents have a big role, probably the biggest role, in how their children develop their emotional intelligence, how they learn to understand their own emotions, also their relationship with their emotions. Do they think some feelings are good and some are bad? Some make them unlovable. Or do they recognize that all their feelings are okay? They're not good or bad. They just are. And it's good to learn from them. And then also how to help deal with those emotions, how to express those feelings appropriately, and how then to cope with what they are going through. And anger is one of those emotions that it's so important to teach kids that there's good ways of expressing it and bad ways. Now, when they're two or three and they're tantruming, you don't want it to get into the good or the bad because they really can't control it. But as they get older, you want to show them that it's good to express your anger, let someone know you're upset, but the way you do it is very important. And first and foremost, parents have to be doing this themselves. Again, in most families, anger is not expressed well. So if mommy and daddy fight every so often and start yelling and throwing things, well, you're showing them that anger is this bad thing, this monster that is scary. But if you express your anger in a healthy way, you show them that it can be okay. It's not something scary or bad, and you can do it in a healthy way that actually helps make relationships stronger rather than worse. So how you deal with your child's anger is very important. And keep in mind when they're showing you how angry they are, they're trying to express something to you. They're not trying to give you a hard time. They are having a hard time. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, studio number 3104410555. Sometimes when we see people in the public eye, we think we're seeing confidence, and then we're not sure if it is confidence, or some people might call it confidence, and they wonder, well, what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? Because that's something we actually are seeing 
much more. Most of the time when I see people talking about someone who is so confident, when you take a closer look or when you take a look at them, you start to see that in fact they're not confident in themselves, they're actually arrogant or even we can say narcissistic, or they're trying to put an image of being confident. And this is one of the problems we see, and I've talked about this issue before, that Stephen Covey points out of the personality ethic versus the character ethic. The character ethic means that we do things to help change ourselves at the core, to become better people. I want to become more honest. I want to have more integrity at my core. I want to care about other people more, genuinely. Unfortunately, the personality ethic and what a lot of self-help books in the more recent uh, history of self-help books and psychology, they tend to focus on the personality ethic, which is more how to look a certain way. How do you look like a good leader? Or even how do you look like you care about people? So they'll say, oh, what do people do that like those who are very caring and people find caring, oh, it looks like they ask questions about people or they do this. So they say, ask five questions to everyone you see. But if you don't genuinely care about people, very soon it becomes apparent and they will feel that lack of genuineness or the inauthenticity and they won't feel like you actually care about them. Or, for example, it's good to be humble. So what does it look like for someone to be humble? excuse me, I just sneezed, but if someone um, looks humble, oh, it seems like they don't try to take maybe so much credit for things or uh, they don't, you know, point out their own um, successes. But however, when someone who is trying to act humble, who really is not humble, they still do that. They still show or bring attention to their good things, but they'll say things like, oh, I, I did nothing or I was nothing in this. And they'll make a blanket statement that basically states, oh, look, I'm humble. And then they'll act in a certain way to show whatever they actually are. So there's lots of things where people want to seem a certain way or pretend that they are a certain way and they know how to fake it, but really there is a lack of authenticity to it. Another one I see, for example, is that we know that sometimes uh, artists are very eccentric. And if we look at the genius artists throughout history, they were a little bit odd and bizarre and different. And then everyone knows this. And then now people just pretend to be a little bit different. At least that's how it looks to me to think that they're such a great artist. Oh, look at how I dress so weird because I'm so artistic. Or look at how I do this or that. It's a reflection of my genius. I'm on that border of genius and crazy. And that's why I'm this way. But it feels very inauthentic. It doesn't feel like they actually are that way or really are this um, incredible genius. It just seems they want to be portrayed in that way. So more and more people are learning how to say the right things, but not necessarily are they being the right way or is it coming from their core? Are they genuinely being that? And we see this happening more and more because it's being promoted more. I think uh, with social media especially, there's a lot more of a... Um, a attachment to the superficial and that is not a good thing now is social media itself a bad thing absolutely not but to kind of have some bad influences i think so but coming back to this idea of confidence versus arrogance one thing about confidence is it's a lot quieter than arrogance by that i mean someone who is 
confident, has a belief in themselves that they are good, and we, we can talk about self-esteem and self-confidence differently, but in this case, confidence, that I'm, I'm good at what I am. If you ask them, they'll tell you, so they won't have to be humble about it and say, no, I'm the worst at everything. They have an accurate assessment and understanding of their abilities, and they'll let you know. Are you good at this? Yeah, I'm, I'm good at that. Are you good at that? Oh, I'm not so good at this. And they'll just be very honest. Also, they won't have to put anyone else down to feel good about themselves and about their own capabilities or abilities. So they don't have to say, I'm better than this person or that person is so bad and I'm so much better than him or her because they just feel okay and confident in their capabilities and what they can do. There's no need for them to put anyone down. And here maybe I'll tie in genuine self-esteem and self-confidence. So someone who has self-esteem as far as for their worth, they feel good about who they are. They never have to disrespect someone to feel good about themselves or to put someone else down to show you that they're better than someone else or to feel good about themselves. On the other hand, arrogance or narcissism is going to have a very different feel. It has a self-promoting feel that I have to show you how good I am and I'm going to put it in your face that I am so good because you have to see it and look at this confidence that I have. Not only that, it very often involves putting other people down. I'm so much better than so-and-so. This person is bad. This person is not very good. I am so good. I'm the best. I never make mistakes. That's another thing. There's an inaccurate understanding of their own level of skill or even what's humanly possible. I never make a mistake. I'm perfect. Or they put this image and someone sometimes hears that and people think, wow, he's so confident or she's so confident in herself that she's saying, I never make a mistake. Someone who is actually confident recognizes that making mistakes is human and whatever you're doing, whether you're an athlete and you're shooting the ball, you know you're not going to make every single shot. You might have confidence that you're going to make most of them, or each time you're shooting it, you have a confidence that you'll make it, but you're never going to say, never make, miss a shot. I never make a mistake. That wouldn't make sense. And if you hear that, you recognize this is someone who doesn't really know themselves or is clinging to some idealization of themselves, or they want you to believe some idealization of themselves because they actually don't feel very good about themselves. So arrogance involves an inaccurate understanding of who I am and of my skill because I want you to see me in a certain way, not because actually I am that certain thing. So we can see a difference between confidence and arrogance in a few different domains. But it's all, this is also true of other types of um, behaviors or characteristics. For example, kindness. I know a lot of people that think, oh, this person is so nice. They do this, that, or the other. And kindness is one of those things that's difficult to sometimes recognize because we don't really know someone's intention. But really what it comes down to is your intention. If I am getting you something because genuinely it feels good for me and I give it to you without any kind of expectation in return, well, then that can be genuine kindness. But when I am expecting something in return, whether it's for you to literally reciprocate in return what I've given you, or for me to look good in front of certain people or to have a certain reputation or seem a certain way, well, then it's not genuine kindness because it's not coming from this good place of giving. It's coming because I want to get something out of it. And here we see social media 
creating another avenue for people to sometimes do this. Now, I think it's a little bit blurry because I think when people show themselves doing kindness through their social media, it's not just a bad thing. Um, so I don't want to make that seem like that's what I think because celebrities will post things about doing charity or doing different things. And it's not black or white that it's always good or always bad because sometimes I think it's very good that they're bringing awareness to certain issues. They're saying, look, there's this issue with homelessness. There's an issue with childhood cancer. Or there's this issue with this, that, and the other, and they're bringing attention to it. And that is very good. Not only that, by using their influence and doing those good things, they're showing that it is good to do these things. And that promotes more people to do it as well. Uh, giving and being kind are in a way contagious. We are social beings. So when we see others doing good, it makes us more likely to do good, no matter who they are. And yes, of course, when they are celebrities, we know they do have more of an impact on people's behavior. People look up to them, people admire them, people want to be like them. So they see them doing good things. Well, then they actually might be more likely to take action too. So I think that can be very good. However, at the same time, we know there's lots of times that people are doing things, celebrities are not, but they're almost looking for the photo opportunity to look uh, humanitarian. I would sometimes make a joke you know, people, they go to Skid Row one time and they put a picture and they hashtag humanitarian and then maybe they never go back or maybe they don't even do anything while they're there, but it's to look a certain way. And of course, this is part of what social media is doing is that people are becoming more focused on how they look to others based on their social media rather than who they actually are. So if they look kind, if they look generous, if they look like there's someone who cares about other people, that means a lot to them. But if that's really who they are, it might not necessarily be the case. So you have to ask yourself this, and I've always brought this up when it comes to any social media post, why am I posting this? What's my motivation and intention? And also, am I taking advantage of the person I'm putting in this picture? Sometimes people will go up to someone and without even asking them, take a picture with them to show what a kind act they are doing. And maybe the person is not even okay with that or doesn't want to be on your social media. But because we have this desire to look a certain way, we might say, well, I'm just still going to post it anyway, or I'm posting it to, you know, because I'm such a good person. What it all comes down to is your intention, which is true of anything. But when it comes to kindness, this is very important. And sometimes people will say, well, I was uh, dating someone and, you know, he's so kind. He was doing so many nice things for me. And then when we got married or when the relationship got established, he stopped doing those things altogether and became really mean to me. So if we look back at those original actions, we actually come to see that they weren't out of kindness. They were just gestures and actions for a plan to get someone, to get the person into the relationship. And really, they didn't care much for, about them after all. Because genuine kindness means I care about you, I love you, I have these positive feelings towards you, I want to do something nice for you, without any expectation of a, even a thank you, uh, even some kind of response from you is not necessary. And this is why actually sometimes it can be nice to anonymously do something kind for someone where they can't even, they don't even know you did it for them, because you genuinely did it to help them or give them what you did. Now, someone could argue you got a good feeling out of it. And I know this is sometimes the argument people have of there's no such thing as a purely 
altruistic act because even when you do it and no one knows, you feel good and that good feeling means you're getting something out of it. And I agree, you do get something out of it. I think um, giving does make us feel better. Even I've talked before about how doing community service can help combat depression and help you feel better. But I think it's all comes down to your intention and really how much you're trying to get out of it, we can say is important too, or what you are trying to get out of it. If yes, you know, it feels good when you give something to someone, but you want to genuinely give them something, that's one thing. But if you give something and you want to make sure other people see it or hear about it and they talk about it, well then your intention is clearly something different. You're doing it because you want to look a certain way. You don't even really care about the recipient necessarily getting something. You just want to make sure you get that attention and approval and validation. So we always want to look at our own intentions and anything that we do. And with other people, we want to try to evaluate it. We can never really fully know why someone does what they do. But we do want to take a closer look. Is this genuine kindness? Does this person do things with an expectation in return? Or is it truly coming from the bottom of their heart? They want to do something and, and express that kindness in that way. And that can really make or break w whether it's kindness or something completely different, something actually very selfish. And going back to how I started the segment, looking at co confidence and arrogance, you want to look at where the person is coming from. Is it genuinely they believe in themselves or is it something they're trying to put in your face? Again, true confidence is much more quiet than arrogance. You don't really see people who have a firm belief in themselves telling you over and over again. If someone is trying to tell you about how great they are, that usually means they are not so sure about how great they are. They're not sure they believe it and they want to make sure you believe it. Genuinely confident people tend to be much more quiet than people who are arrogant and trying to promote themselves in a particular way. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. Now, when we talk about communication, it's one of the culprits people tend to go to when they say, why did a relationship not work? Oh, we didn't communicate. Well, it's usually much bigger than that because usually it's not just about using the right techniques. The quality of the relationship and the friendship that they had is usually what was leading to the bigger issues, but communication itself is very important. And it's not only important in our romantic relationships, but it's important in how we communicate with everyone, from friends to family, also especially in the workplace. But it's in all of our relationships that we want to be aware of our communication style. And there are really three main styles that we can talk about, and really a fourth, which in some ways is a blend of the others. But what we usually talk about is passive communication, uh, assertive communication, and aggressive communication. And then there's also passive aggressive type, which I'll talk a bit about too. But the three main ones are passive 
um, assertive and aggressive, with assertive being the healthiest of those three and the ones we want to strive towards. Now, when we talk about these communication patterns, almost no one exclusively operates from one pattern or one style, but you do want to see if there's one that you predominantly function from. So passive communication, as the name implies, means you're passive in what you communicate. You tend to hold things in. You tend not to express yourself. You tend not to express your feelings or what you think, your opinions. You hold them to yourself in order to avoid conflict, in order to not cause discomfort for yourself and for other people. Also, in order to make people like you, someone who tends to operate from passive communication tends not to give a lot of worth or value to themselves and what they have to say and what they feel. And they tend to think, well, if I express myself, people might not like me. People not might, might not want to be around me, might not love me. I might not get approval. So the safest thing for me to do is to be passive, just almost not have anything to say or do, not to upset someone. So this is someone that you might think, oh, they're so nice because you see them and they just never say anything. They never express how they feel. But going back to what I was saying in the previous segment, it's actually not about being nice. They're holding so much in because of these feelings that they have about expressing themselves. They're not genuinely being kind. They're just trying to avoid conflict. And actually, because they're holding so much in, they tend to build a lot of resentment towards other people because they don't get what they want in situations even though they themselves are creating the scenario and creating the dynamic, but this tends to be what happens. So again, they're holding things in. They're just agreeable to everything. Do you want to do this or that? Does it make a difference? Do you have any objections to what we're doing? No. Is anything wrong with this? No. Looks good. They're not going to express themselves. Also, they tend to be more quiet. So they're going to say things in a more quiet way. Even their posture or the way they hold themselves is going to be a little bit more soft and um, maybe their posture is a little bit down. They might not do have direct eye contact, but they won't be stating what they tend to feel. So they won't stand up for their rights. They won't stand up for their feelings, their thoughts. They're going to hold things in. Now, the other end of the spectrum is aggressive communication. And here they're using aggression. Um, so there's ways that they use physical and verbal almost threats to get what they want. So this for this person, it's my way or the highway. I want things to be this way and I'm going to make sure it gets to be that way. So they're going to try to dominate others. They may even try to humiliate, criticize, or put other people down to make them look better and to make them look worse also in a power play to try to get the power in the situation. They're going to speak much more loudly, even yelling at times to get their way. They're not going to listen very well to you. They're only focused on what they're saying. They don't really care what you have to say because it's going to be their way. They might listen at some point to what you're saying just as a way to counteract what you're saying to either maybe tell you you're stupid or wrong in whatever way that they can but they're focusing on making sure they get things to be their way. It's my way or the highway. I get to call the shots. And of course, um, these people are not very easy to be in communication with. And we can see how in some ways it's the opposite of 
the passive style in some ways because whereas the passive style doesn't share anything about what they're feeling or thinking, the aggressive person almost states things too strongly, is telling everyone what they feel. It has to be my way or the highway. I will intimidate you. I will put you down. I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want. Now, the passive-aggressive form of communication is somewhat, in a way, as the name implies, a blend of these two. Passive-aggressive means that directly I don't express anything negative towards you, but I'm still going to be aggressive in some way. Somehow I'm going to express myself. And actually, I was talking about in the first segment about jokes. Sarcasm is a very good way to be passive-aggressive. So I'm not really saying anything directly bad or making fun of you, or, or I, I say I'm making fun of you. I'm not saying something insulting to you because it's a joke, but I express my upset feelings or that I'm not happy about what you are saying. So they might seem okay to your face. They seem like everything's okay, but they will use subtle ways to express their anger at you or to try to get their point across, but directly they don't express themselves. Now, if you look at those three types that I talked about so far, the passive aggressive and passive aggressive, in none of these do we see someone with a strong sense of self-esteem and a healthy self. Because even in the aggressive type, um, they might seem very confident because they keep saying, my idea is the best idea. My idea is the one we're going to go with. I'm the one who's right here. There still isn't this feeling of I'm okay with who I am, so I can be okay with you too. The mindset is more, I'm okay, you're not okay. At least that's how they express it, even though they don't feel it, but they're trying to say, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm the one who knows what's going on and you don't. Whereas this is not what someone with a healthy sense of self-esteem would say. And of course, the passive person does not have a strong sense of self, doesn't feel good about themselves, thinks people won't like me or love me if I state what I really think or feel, or also what I think or feel isn't important or isn't very good. I shouldn't share my ideas because they're not good. And again, although they seem very nice, someone who is very passive and continues to be passive tends to get very angry over time and they start to feel this internal resentment. Why don't things ever go my way? Why don't I ever get to say what I think? No one cares what I have to say. But again, they have to be aware that they're helping to create this pattern. But now what we want to strive towards is assertive communication. In assertive communication, we clearly state how we think and feel and what our opinions and ideas are without violating or trying to step on anybody else's toes. I'm not violating your rights or your space, but I'm just going to let you know what I feel very clearly. I value myself, but I also value you. I value my thoughts and opinions, but I also value your thoughts and opinions, so I'm very clearly and strongly going to express what I think and what I feel. They're going to be much more comfortable and confident even in their body posture and how they look when you're expressing things in an assertive manner. They're not afraid of eye contact, not in an aggressive way. Someone who is actually aggressive might overly stare in an intimidating way, but someone with an assertive communication style will look at you in your eye in a very clear and communicative way that they're talking to you, they're connected to you, but not in any way to impose or make you feel uncomfortable. They also won't be putting other people down. I feel good and confident in my ideas, 
and I present them, but I don't need to put your ideas down to make me feel better about my ideas. I also even recognize my idea might not be the best one. And as a group, I want us to come to the best decision. So I will confidently, clearly, and as strongly as I can present my idea so we understand it. But I also want to hear the other ideas to come to a conclusion that is the best for the group. And people with an assertive style tend to be more connected to the peoples in the groups that they are in. Uh, it also creates better relationships because when I'm clear and you know what I actually think and feel, it's a lot easier to have a relationship with me. If I'm so passive that you never know what I'm thinking or feeling, it's very hard to connect to someone like that. And if I'm aggressive and I'm constantly overbearing and pushing you back and making sure I get to stay my way, even putting you down, if I have to put you down, well, of course, that's not good for relationships either. So people that are communicating assertively are much more likely to create good relationships and to feel good about how they feel in those communications. It feels very smooth and easy. And for any of us, we can look, okay, which style do I operate from the most? In lots of families, we see different members tend to have different styles. Maybe one of the kids is very passive. And sometimes parents think, oh, that's the good kid because he or she never disagrees or has any objections to anything or makes things difficult. But as I always say, if you have a child that way, you actually want to be very concerned for that child. <coughs> this child is actually holding a lot in and that's not healthy. That's not good. You want your child to disagree with you when they don't agree, to express themselves when they want to, and to let you know how they feel. So the other child who may be Maybe let's say even teeters close to aggressive, but at least is being more on the assertive style and tells you how they feel, we might see as the difficult one. So sometimes families come into therapy, they think this is the problem child, but maybe the one that's having even more difficulties is the one that is holding things in. So as a parent, you have to be mindful of this idea that the quiet, silent one who never causes a problem might be actually doing worse than the one who's letting you know how they feel. So I've seen families go through a divorce and they say, oh, one kid was taking it really bad. They were acting out a little bit. They were sad. They were crying all the time. And the other one, oh, she was just an angel. She was taking it really easy. I'm not worried about her at all. And sometimes we have to let families know, well, actually, that's the one I'm even more worried about. If you guys went through a, a stressful divorce, any divorce is stressful on the children. Well, we want to expect that your kid is going to express some things is not doing okay. And if they held everything in, that's actually a cause for concern. And we want to look at that and actually see how we can create that space for that child to express themselves. Now, when it comes to the workplace, it is very important to adopt an assertive style. And what can be hard is if you are used to coming from a certain place, first of all, you're going to have discomfort in changing. So if you're passive generally in how you communicate, it's going to be hard for you to become assertive. First of all, just any change is difficult, but with the change to genuinely be assertive, you have to have a belief in yourself. You have to care about what you have to say, and you have to believe that people won't dislike me if I express myself. And this is what I was talking about before, about the character ethic and the personality ethic, that if you don't if you just think you can fake it till you make it or pretend 
how to act assertively, let's say, it probably won't work because once you face some type of opposition or once it gets uncomfortable, you'll go right back to what you're used to. You'll go back to being passive because you're like, oh, what did I think? I have anything good to say? My ideas don't matter? Or why am I just creating problems? So to change our communication style, it's a little bit bigger than just how do I say certain words or how do I keep my posture or my eye contact. It does reflect deeper about who we are and how we feel about ourselves and our ideas, etc., etc. So we do have to look a little bit closer at that, but recognize that we want to strive towards moving into an assertive communication style. Now, another aspect of this is that when you change the way you communicate, people tend to react to that. So again, if you're someone who tended to hold everything in, you were so easygoing, nothing bothered you, nothing upset you, you never disagreed, and now all of a sudden you start sharing your opinions, people are like, whoa, 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 who's this person? Where did that come from? And they might actually challenge you and say, you know, this is not feeling quite right for us. We were feeling a little bit easier when you never disagreed and you made everything easy. And that's why it's going to take even more strength from you to recognize that I have to overcome that reaction from them and recognize I do want to communicate in this way because it'll be better for me and actually for them in the long run. But recognize that, yes, anytime you change the way a certain relationship dynamic or communication dynamic is going, people will react, even if it's towards health, even if it's towards something better. And especially when, yes, you were always easygoing and now you're actually challenging things, they might not quite like that because it makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you have to understand, hey, when I'm being assertive, it doesn't mean everything goes easily and smoothly from the beginning. I'm actually going to embrace conflict and disagreement. And that's something we have to be ready for. When I try to encourage people to be more assertive, they say, oh, great, now I'm getting into more you know, disagreements with people are at work. And it's like, yes, that's how it goes. When everyone expresses themselves, we obviously won't always agree. Now, does that mean that disagreement is a tragedy or something really bad? Absolutely not. If we keep that assertive style, we communicate openly and freely, we don't disrespect each other, and we work together to get a solution. I respect you, you respect me. I think your ideas have value, and if you're having them, there must be some reason for that. And I want to understand that and vice versa. So we continue to have communications uh, and conversations that come to a better place. But it doesn't mean that everything just goes smoothly from the get-go. And we have to be ready for that. As you become more assertive, if you are passive, you're going to actually create more disagreements and more conflict, but that's okay. So for all of us, we want to strive towards the assertive style And also recognize that there's a lot about it that we have to understand in order to genuinely be assertive. We can't just walk through the motions and think that it'll work. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi.
Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Now, at the seminar this past weekend, um, I did an exercise with the audience. It was actually quite fun for me and maybe seems a little bit weird to them at times, but it was an interesting uh, experience. So what I had them do is each member of the audience was asked to grab a cup and a piece of ice. Then I had a little cooler there with ice in it and then have a seat. And then what we did together is, and I did it too, while uh, I was behind the microphone, we held the piece of ice in our hand, kind of palm facing up, and just let the ice sit there. And within a few seconds, it does start to hurt. So I, I let them know that it's going to hurt a little bit, but that you're not going to have some kind of permanent damage or anything bad happen to you, but to just uh, bear with me. And, and if they can, they go through the two minutes together they of course were uh, informed they could not do it if they didn't want to stop at any time all those types of things but we did it and sometimes people do this exercise for even longer so we held the ice in our hands it starts to hurt but we pushed through it and then afterwards we talked a little bit about it i wanted to talk about that discussion or what this exercise is about so there's a lot of things we can get from this exercise, this ice-holding exercise. The biggest thing for me is that this is related to our frustration tolerance, or what's sometimes called our distress tolerance, which to me is a very, very big part of our mental health, or what allows us to take good care of ourselves. And if we look at emotional intelligence, we tend to include this under the self-management portion or segment uh, domain of emotional intelligence. How well can I take care of myself? Myself, Because we all have lots of emotions. We also will inevitably face difficulties, distress, things that let us down, things that don't go our way in life. And what's important is what we do with that. We can't prevent anything from going wrong. We can't make sure that everything goes right every moment, every day. But it's how we respond to when things don't go our way that is important. Now, one important thing to note about that, and I mentioned it that day, this exercise, of course, is just kind of like an analogy. But in life, first, we want to see, is there anything I can do about the situation? Because I'm not suggesting that if you're in a bad place or something bad is happening, you have to just accept it and say, because I want to have high distress tolerance and I'm going to display this pillar of mental health, I'm not going to do anything. No, if you're in a painful relationship that keeps hurting you, I don't want you to show your distress tolerance. I want you to get yourself out of that relationship. You don't have to just stay in it. Or if you're in a job you don't like, or if you... Um, are hurting in some way and you can go see a doctor and get better, that's not what distress tolerance is about. And that's a very important distinction is um, the things that you can change, you want to change. And this reminds me of the serenity prayer, but you want to be able to, you know, to figure out what are the things I can change and change those. And absolutely, it's your responsibility to change those things. But when things don't go your way or when that pain, discomfort, or things come up in your life that don't feel very good, it is important that we are able to tolerate what is happening. To begin with, it relates to something I talked about earlier in the show and the way we 
feel about our feelings or the way we've been told our, our feelings are either good or bad. Because sometimes if we've learned from birth that sadness is really bad, we think, well, as soon as I feel it, it's up to me to try to get rid of it. And that could mean taking drugs, eating too much food, engaging in a stupid relationship or gambling or whatever else. It might be just to erase this feeling of sadness. And that's very unfortunate because that's going to get us into a lot of trouble. Not only are all of those temporary solutions, but also they create a new problem for you to deal with. So it doesn't work out very well. What we want to do is recognize that when we're having a bad emotion, that's okay. And I can tolerate it and also understand that it will pass. So coming back to this holding the ice exercise, we saw that it was painful. But to begin with, after a while, the pain tended to feel a little bit less for most people, whether it's their hand was getting a little bit numb in that area or they were just getting used to it, but they saw it wasn't that bad. It was okay. Not only that, it lasted two minutes and we stopped. And yes, their hands were cold for a little bit of time, but pretty soon it got back to normal and they didn't feel the pain anymore. So the exercise was also a demonstration that feelings are temporary, that when you have a feeling even if it feels really unbearable, really bad, it's not going to last forever. And that's why sometimes people say things like when people are suicidal, they say the feelings are temporary, but suicide is permanent. So how you're feeling in the moment isn't going to be that way forever, even if it feels that way because it's so strong and maybe you've been feeling that way for a while. But the action of something like suicide is permanent. That's going to be something you can't come back from. So we want to re remember that our feelings, as bad as they may be, first of all, they're telling us something, as I talked about earlier today, but also they won't last forever. An analogy I like to use when people try to run away from their feelings is imagining there's this storm cloud, which is this negative emotion that we see. And you keep trying to run away from it. And you're running and you're running and you're running. And even in that fact that you're running doesn't mean you feel good. But you are maybe anxious. You're not feeling so good. And you're getting tired. Which is what happens when we try to avoid our emotions. But because you're so afraid of that emotion, that storm cloud, that you're going to do anything you can to run away from it. Numb yourself, take drugs, do whatever you need to do. But if you realize that if you actually just stopped and let the storm cloud pass over you, what you'd see is that it would be above you for a few minutes. You'd get a little bit wet. Maybe it doesn't feel so good. Maybe you get even a little bit cold. But soon enough, it would pass over you. And then you would slowly start to warm up again and be okay. And that's what happens with our emotions. They come to us. They come through us. They stay for a while and then they go. Feelings are not permanent uh, members of our heads in that sense, they're visitors. They come and they go, and different ones come and go at different times. And the better we are at letting them come and then letting them go and releasing them, the better we're going to feel. But the more we try to run away from them and resist them, the worse we're going to feel. And also, again, that understanding that I'm going to feel bad sometimes is something we have to understand and accept. And that understanding that life is difficult. M. Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled, that's the first sentence. Life is difficult. And I really like that 
first sentence because it is something very important to understand and to expect and to accept that sometimes things don't go your way. Sometimes you're not going to be happy. Sometimes things aren't going to feel good, but that's okay. And it's also not forever. When we have that acceptance, we can understand that when we don't feel good, it's not a tragedy. It's not something we need to immediately change or take away. But this is something that parents teach us from a young age that we're supposed to do. Kid is crying, give him candy, give him something, take away whatever it is, promise him something, do this, do that, mom's going to do that, dad's going to do this. And they learn that this sad feeling is something really scary and bad, I need to get rid of it. But instead, when we sit with our kids, as I mentioned in the segment about anger with your children, and show them that this is okay, this is going to pass, and it's okay that you're feeling this way, this gives them the message that this is not an emergency, a crisis that needs to have immediate intervention, but just something that I'm feeling at this time, and it's no big deal. So we want to recognize our own frustration and distress tolerance. How good am I at tolerating things when things aren't going my way? How okay am I at being upset or sad for a while and just sitting with those feelings? Or do I feel like I have to immediately do something. You probably all know someone, you might even be that person who can't tolerate things not going their way. They have very low distress tolerance. And also like many issues in mental health, this is something that we are born with different starting points. So if you look at children, something like temperament is related to frustration tolerance. Some kids just a slight discomfort and they start to cry. They're not trying to be difficult babies. We can be sure of that, assured of that. They don't really know what's going on, but they just can't tolerate a little bit of that discomfort. Another kid sleeps through the night. You know, there's hot, cold, whatever else is going on. They don't seem too affected by it. But there is this range that we seem to be born with of distress tolerance, how easy it is for us to feel certain things. Also, some disorders such as Autism, children with autism and adults with autism tend to have lower frustration tolerance. It's hard for them to handle things being different from what they're comfortable with or what they're used to. They like, for example, order and for things to be done in a certain way. And when it's not that way, it's very hard for them to tolerate it. Are they trying to be difficult or are they trying to um, make you upset? Absolutely not. It really is out of their control. They are just that way, the way their brain is working, that when they feel that way, they really can't tolerate it. An analogy I like to use is temperature. So actually, I'm someone who tends to run a little bit warm. It actually leads to sometimes uh, air conditioning wars here at the radio station at the office where I try to make it cooler and some people like a little bit warmer. We go back and forth. But the analogy I like to use is if we both walk into a room and one of us feels kind of cold and the other one feels warm or feels okay, it's not either one of us our fault that we feel that way. It's just the way we feel, the way our body is responding. I'm not choosing to be warm and you're not choosing to be cold. It's just the way our bodies are. So our distress tolerance at the starting point is the same thing. We don't choose to be a particular way. It's just how we are. But we can work on our distress tolerance by one, practicing feeling uncomfortable sometimes, I'm not saying make yourself feel pain, but when it does come up, trying to practice embracing it rather than running away from it, but also in 
changing our mindset towards it, recognizing that when something bad comes up, it's not a tragedy. It's not something that uh, means we have to change something. Again, first we evaluate, can I make a change? Can I do something about what's going on? But once we recognize we can't, we learn the value of acceptance, of accepting what is and recognizing that however it feels, however maybe bad it might even feel, that's not going to be forever. And I actually can sit through this and live through this and be okay. So we can change our attitude towards the discomforts, the distresses, the negative events that occur in our life. Viktor Frankl says that, you know, even when you can't change something, the last thing that we can change is our attitude. So when you can't change something that is going on, what you can change is your attitude towards it. That wasn't a direct quote, which I think was obvious, but it's something along those lines that even if I can't change my situation, I can change my attitude towards my situation. And of course, imagine this is from someone who was in a, a concentration camp for, I think, three years, and he would recognize the significance of that, that sometimes we can't change something, all we can change is our attitude. So it's important to look at our distress tolerance. How much can I tolerate? How much am I willing to withstand and how do I withstand it? And recognizing that the more I can improve that, the more I can increase my ability to withstand things not going that way, the better I'm going to be able to deal with life. Sometimes people don't do what we want them to do. Sometimes things don't work out the way we want them to do. Um, sometimes we face difficulties, hardships, whatever it might be, but the better we can withstand them and not let them make us do things we don't want to do or to defeat us, the better we are able to respond to life. All right, we're going into our last commercial break for the show. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. Now, for the last segment, I wanted to talk about gratitude. Excuse me, I was having a cough drop. And that's actually what I wanted to talk about. I have been a little bit under the weather for the past few days. I think some listeners might even be able to notice a difference in my voice because I can hear it. And although I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, it also is a reminder of how much I have to be grateful for, for all of us, keep that in mind. Now, when I'm talking about being grateful, even though I'm sick, I'm not saying that I'm going to ignore that I'm not feeling well. And this is something that oftentimes comes up, especially in therapy when individuals start to bring up negative things in their past. They can say, well, you know, 
some such and such happen and they start to get sad and sometimes as a defense to not feel sad, they will all of a sudden switch gears and say, oh, but I, I have so much to be grateful for. How can I complain about anything? Now, these things are not incompatible. You can be grateful for things, but also be hurt by certain things or have certain pains. You can feel good and feel bad at the same time. Another interesting part about our emotions is not we're just feeling purely one thing at a time. I remember a professor in graduate school, he used to say you can win the lottery and then in your excitement of celebrating, stub your toe and your toe will still hurt and you might feel a little bit upset about that, but you'll still be very happy that you won the lottery. That's not one or the other. However, when we're looking at how we're doing in our lives, we know that looking at the good can have a very big impact on how we feel long term. Gratitude itself, although we think of it as something that's one of these new age type of things and that people like to say is good but really has no validity, well, research is actually showing us that it is very good and very important. The Upward Spiral, the book that uh, book of the week for this week that I hope all of you will read, includes a section on gratitude because there is neuroscience research showing that it makes changes in our brains. It does make positive impacts. And although we don't want to necessarily compare, but it is something that even right now, and I'll be honest, I don't feel too bad. I just have a little bit of a sore throat, a little bit stuffy, but I'm overall pretty okay and my energy feels okay. But people do generally say you don't recognize how lucky you are. Or for example, you take your health for granted until you lose it. You take the people that you love in your life for granted until you lose them. And gratitude is exactly about that, recognizing and focusing our attention on what we actually do have when you have it, not waiting until you lose it to recognize that it was something good. So yes, when my my (laughs) throat is not sore, I do feel a little bit better. I don't feel so bad right now, but I can be grateful for that and also recognize, well, all the other parts of my body that don't ache or not hurting, I can be grateful for that and remember that. And that's actually something I remember a, a psychologist in one of my internship sites would mention when we do these types of meditations, focusing on the body. And he would say, well, instead of focusing on just the knee that hurts, also send gratitude and thanks for the knee that's not hurting. Don't just focus on the one that is in pain. Focus on what you do have. So when we're being grateful and we're expressing gratitude, we're not ignoring the pain. We're not ignoring the negative. We're not ignoring what needs help or what we can do to help ourselves, but we're focusing on those good things. So when we do something like a gratitude journal, which is writing, let's say, three to five things each day that you're grateful for, and research shows that it can be very helpful and very meaningful, well, what we're doing is we're we're helping to train our mind to focus more on good things in our life, not in a overly optimistic way, but in a general or genuine way where we actually see what is there. What do I have in my life that I'm grateful for? for? What can I look at that made my day today something very nice to be grateful for? Who do I have in my life that I'm grateful for? And what we know about the brain is what we use more 
fires more easily or the neurons and the neural networks that we use, they become better at working. So I've talked before about having like a compassion muscle in our brain. And the more we focus on being compassionate and having love for others, the stronger that part of our brain becomes. The same is true of gratitude. The more we practice it, the more we focus on it, the more we find to be grateful in our lives and the better we feel those parts of our brain become stronger until we start to adapt what I, we can call an a gr attitude of gratitude, where you focus and recognize gratitude in so much of what you're doing and experiencing and have in your life every day that you are just surrounded by these things that help you feel good. And a demonstration of how this works is that sometimes people who are severely depressed are given this essentially prescription of doing a gratitude journal. Oftentimes their reaction is, you're asking me, the person who's so miserable whose life seems so bad right now to write down five things every day that I'm grateful for, that I feel good about. And you say, yes. Well, oftentimes when they do it the first time, they say, I couldn't think of anything. I tried to really think of something to be grateful for and nothing came to my mind. And you'd let them know, okay, that's okay. You, there isn't really this right or wrong way to do it, um, but that's fine. But tomorrow try it again. And generally what happens is that gratitude muscle in their brain starts to become more active, starts to look for and notice more things to be grateful for. And then they start to see there are things in their life that they are grateful for, that they do appreciate. And they start to gain momentum and recognize there's more and more. And, and the process continues and it can be very, very helpful. And again, that's why it's in this book, The Upward Spiral, which focuses on small things we can do to help with depression and gratitude is one of them because it can have that effect. And I know it's very cliche to say this, that, you know, tell people you love them because you never know if you'll have another chance or you don't know if it's your last conversation. But really, <laughs> I think that's true. And I think we should keep that in mind. Not that you should expect that every conversation you're having is going to be the last, but it's good to remember that we really don't know. And you want to make sure you do say what you want to say to those people around you because you don't know when you'll have a chance to say it again. People on their deathbed, sometimes one of their um, regrets in life is not telling more people how they felt about them how much they loved people or just saying, I love you more. They recognize they, they wish they had done that more. Almost no one regrets sharing their love to people more, showing their appreciation and gratitude to people, but people can regret not sharing it. And there's no really easy way to get ourselves to do it other than recognizing that we want to do it. We want to show that appreciation and gratitude. There was even a study that found that just writing a handwritten I don't know if it had to be handwritten, actually, but a thank you note to someone randomly. Just something saying, I appreciate your friendship. Um, I care for you very much. Or I remembered what you did for me three months ago. Whatever it was, and it wasn't supposed to actually even be for a specific thing. Just a general note out of the blue. They found changes in their happiness that occurred when they did that, but they lasted for six months after the study. It had that much of an effect. So by expressing gratitude, of course, the person receiving it feels very good and they're going to feel good about that. But we also feel very good, too. It actually has an effect on us and our relationships. Uh, there was a study that found that one, a predictor of marital satisfaction was how appreciated the partner felt, 
how much they felt their husband or wife appreciated them was a big predictor in how happy the relationship was going to be. And that's yet another relationship where we tend to take things for granted. Well, he does this for me every day. She does this for me every day. It's now expected. But we need to shift that mindset from it's expected to it's appreciated every time. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate all the times you did that and you did this. Doesn't mean the person will stop doing it if you appreciate it. Sometimes Iranians tend to think this, that if you give someone too much praise for something or too much appreciation, they think it's such a big deal that they might stop doing it or they might think that you know you owe them when they do it. You're just showing your appreciation that you like and it feels good for you when they do that and you want to express that gratitude and that appreciation towards them so to conclude the show today i was hoping to just send that message to keep it in mind even keeping it in mind for myself um, that just in my day-to-day i have so much to be grateful for Um, yes i'm feeling a little bit sick but really it's nothing significant at all but it is a reminder of how lucky i am for my health every day and everything that does function well we are very delicate beings as human beings one you know speck could get into your body that's not supposed to be there and it could lead to your death really that's just how it is or we've all actually probably been closer to death than we realize it's just how life is it's very delicate so we can be very grateful for just waking up every day um i remember actually being on skid row a few months ago and one of my friends was talking to someone who was living there and the lady said you know they asked her what are you grateful for she's like i have she had just one eye and they said i'm grateful for this one eye every day that's one thing to be grateful for i get to open it and see the world and and just live and she was happy about that and it was a reminder of what we sometimes take for granted what we can be appreciative of and grateful for having that Uh, experience every day of just being awake and being alive was something she never took for granted and i hope we all do that and i hope i do that myself and that's why i wanted to talk about that today and talk about how important it is to express it to the people around us that we don't take them for granted let them know say think of someone today right now that you haven't maybe talked to for a while or you haven't expressed this type of appreciation for and give them a call I know in today's day and age, most of the younger audience will send a text or a snap, (laughs) but I'd rather you send it in a different type of way. Actually, I think that's something interesting for me about Snapchat. For those of you that are not familiar, you send pictures or videos or texts, but they disappear. And I think that disappearing part of it is actually reinforces this idea of not really committing to what you're saying as much, um, Snapchat itself is a very useful app for lots of things, and people communicate in a lot of ways. But I do think that's interesting because people write things to each other, but they're not permanent. They don't stay there, and you can even deny them, or there can be dispute of what you said and all sorts of other things. But especially for something like this, I would hope you send it in some more permanent fashion, something that stays and that there is uh, written evidence of what you're saying to one another. Maybe I'll talk about that Snapchat issue another time. But express some type of appreciation to someone you care about, someone you love, out of the blue, with no expectation of anything in return, with no expectation they'll say something back to you. Just let them know how you feel, and I can assure you, you will feel better yourself. The person receiving it will also feel good, very likely, but you'll feel better and have 
a better day. We actually see that when people do something for someone else, even if they use their money on other people, it's usually a better use of their money than spending it on themselves. They feel better after the fact. So if everyone could just do that, that would make me very happy. And if you want to share with me what you said on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, let me know what you said and to whom and what that response and reaction was like in them, but also what it was like for you. And I can say very honestly, I'm very grateful to get to do this show um, and also the people that allows me to meet and interact every interact with every day. On Monday, I actually had a guest in the studio with me. She wasn't on the air with me, but her name is Jessica, someone who I met on the cruise and who surprised me at my seminar on Sunday. And because she had surprised me and um, I was very happy to see her, we had her in the studio on Monday, uh, Monday night's show, and it was a great time. And I was very, to ha- very happy to have her there and very grateful for that moment and that experience. So Jessica, thank you for sharing that with me and allowing us to have that moment together and that time and for surprising me. And again, to all the listeners out there, just know I'm very grateful to get to do this show every time I do it. I get lots of very kind messages um, expressing appreciation or nice words about the show, but really I, I try to always let the listeners know I'm very grateful to get to do what I do and to work with the people I get to work with here including Rahman, who is here in the studio with me right now. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. So thank you to all the callers or all the listeners out there. Thank you to Rahman. And thank you to everyone who lets me do this show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Hope you have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.